Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. The first time I gave a real scientific presentation, it was to a uh, group at Santa Cruz. Um, And after I finished the talk, um, one of the famous cosmologists in the audience um, stood up and he turned around to the audience and he said, you know, I just want to point out that this is really a big deal. This is a completely different picture. And that was the moment where I stopped and I said, yeah, actually, it's a big deal, you know. And, and, and it, it, it's, it's sort of somebody else had to help you, you, you remind yourself that this is really, you know, amazing. That's Saul Perlmutter, whose big deal discovery was that the expansion of the universe isn't slowing down, as was long assumed by him and every other cosmologist, but that it's actually speeding up and at an ever-increasing rate. The discovery won him the Nobel Prize in 2011. We talked soon after the James Webb Space Telescope reached its parking spot a million miles out in space from where it will peer back farther in time than any telescope before it. This is a very exciting time to be talking to you, for me anyway, because what's happening, what's big news right now, is that the Webb Telescope is right where it ought to be, a million miles out in space, getting ready to take pictures of the some of the earliest events in the universe. This must be an exciting time for you as a cosmologist, no? Every time we get a new instrument, um, everybody, you know, starts co- talking to each other about, okay, now what can we do? What kinds of, uh, you know, observations can we take this time? And can we solve any of the problems that we've been wondering about? And so, uh, you know, you, you watch as these, in this case, the petals unfold, you know, on, on this telescope and you, and you just, you know, hope, okay, you know, it's got to do all those little things just right. And, and, you know, unfold to that last precision, uh, you know, surface so that you can actually do the, you know, all the science we'd love to do. And so it's, it's, in this case, it's, it, you know, it looks like it's been a major success so far, right. And that actually will actually, we'll really be able to do something with it. 
Do you have experiments planned to do on the web? So we have some proposals already already in. We we already got turned down once. You got turned down. Wait a minute. You discovered one of the most mysterious things in the entire universe, and they got turned down. <laughs> How did that happen? It, this is the life of the astronomer. Um, that you know, ev- every proposal uh, you, you write, um, you, you, it, go, it goes to the committees, and you know, and then you invariably uh, you know get get turned down um, you know several times, and and then you try again, and uh, and so it, you know it's it's just par for the course. Um, so, so we're, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're not daunted, but we're, but we're, uh, yeah, we're, we'll, we're hoping that the next round will be, will, you know, th- this particular project will be in. That's but, great. You know, other projects that we, that we're working with, um, they got time. And so we'll be looking forward to see, seeing, you know, the data as it starts to come. What, what do you hope to find? What, what do you think might, might come out of the explorations you and everybody else is making on this? I mean, a telescope like this is really um, designed to cover a, a vast swath of topics. Um, so it go, goes from the things that uh, you know astronomers have been interested in, uh, you know, where they're looking at, uh, you know, these specific, you know, some specific object. You know, how does it work? Was you know, how does it evolve? Um, to the vast uh, combination of all the of, of the all the objects in, in the universe uh, that does co- that when we're doing cosmology. And so, uh, you know, the projects I tend to do tend to be the projects that have to do with trying to measure the, essentially the history, the expansion of the universe, just like we did before. But now we need to do it, you know, 20 times more precisely, um, because what we're trying to do is understand in, in, in the projects that I'm involved with, trying to understand why is it that the universe um, seems to uh, be now accelerating in its expansion. And that's been one of these mysteries since we first uh, saw that bizarre behavior and so that's the that's the project that I'm, that I'm still um, you know very uh, eager to to see the next steps for the and I should say the the the, the fact that there's a new telescope means that you can actually uh, see much much fainter objects because it's a much bigger telescope and that means that you're seeing much further away and in astronomy that means that you get to see further back in time. How far back in time will you see? Well, at this point, uh, the targets that we're we're talking about are on the order of uh, ten to eleven billion years. Uh, that uh, back in time that the light left those targets and started coming towards us. You know what's amazing to me? You have a grasp, a foothold in the vastness of the cosmos. And yet you're, I'm really struck by the fact that you're a really down-to-earth person with down-to-earth feelings and, and goals. You, you play the violin, Right. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. You, you play with with an orchestra uh, when, when when we can. Uh, this uh, last few years, of course, it's been a uh, you know not, not a uh, not a major orchestra playing time, um, but uh, but no, absolutely, that's, that's my favorite thing is actually uh, playing in an orchestra. And you're so concerned to help people like us who aren't trained in what you're trained in to understand it because it's really hard to understand. Concepts that are not everyday concepts you, that don't really conform often to how we experience the world normally. I mean, one of the real pleasures that, that I, I find in, in the kind of work that I'm doing is, is going back and forth between ideas that are just completely mind-boggling, that you know, our, we, our brains just aren't designed to think about them very easily, um, and then going from that to very practical things like how do you tell how bright something is? How do you measure, uh, you know, the, the the number of photons that are coming in into this telescope? And how are we going to get from that telescope to some other place with the data? And, you know, these very, just very practical problems. Um, and 
it also, uh, I think, ties into another interest that I have, which is um, being able to think flexibly about the world that we live in. And so that we go from, you know, worries that we don't quite understand the details of, of how something is, 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 is running to the very practical questions of, but we still have to make a decision anyway. We still have to decide, you know, how, how are we going to, uh, you know, solve a pandemic? How, how are we going to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, w- work with the uh, energy, you know, resources that we have? Um, you know, these, these very day-to-day um, problems that we, that we are all visibly facing, um, in some sense, are just reflections of the, uh, what we do know and what we don't know about what, what's going on out there in the world, and then tying that together with our values and our goals. And I think that combination for me is very exciting. And you have a day-to-day way of doing it, too. Don't you have a course on teaching physics through music and so, kind of vice versa? How does yeah, that so, work? No, so that one, one of my, uh, one of the first courses I taught, and I, and I, and I still love that, that, that course, was a, a course I developed, which was around, um, as you say, the physics of music. Uh, and the idea w- was that anybody, so many people at the university love music and are involved with music in different ways. And so many people in the university are scared of physics. And the idea <laughs> is that uh, you, you, know, you come in for something that you really enjoy and you really care about, and then you start realizing that actually physics can be fun and that you can, you can use all the understanding of the world that we develop with physics to uh, understand a little more about what it is that we're doing when we listen to music and when we, and we play music and we hear music. Um, and what I loved about it was that you could teach not just the, you know, these aspects of, of music, but also the aspects of how we do a scientific project, how we think through problems and how we figure out what's going on. When we when we look at a in this case you know a musical sound, and uh, and so that was the combination that, that I loved when I was developing that course. That that is that similar or is it part of the course called Sense and Sensibility in Science? That, well, are, they, once, are they allied? They they were in the following way. Um, in the beginning, when I was developing the physics and music course, I said to myself, every class I'd love to teach like one or two or three ideas. Of that have to do with the physics of music, and one or two or three ideas about just how we think as scientists about problems. And in the end, I started realizing those parts of the story, what are a couple of the things we learned as scientists about how to think, approach any problem, that really should be as a standalone course. And I started to think about how could I develop a course where I just went through, how do we think about problems? And I realized that that was not even a a, uh, a a course that was just for physicists, that you really wanted to bring other people into the game. So I found a philosopher and I found a, uh, a public policy a professor um, who, who does social psychology. And I got, and we, and we brought them together and we brought together, um, we put a sign up saying, are you troubled watching our society make decisions? Um, come help invent a course, come help save the world. And uh, and about 30 uh, you know, graduate students and postdocs and undergraduates started showing up every week um, for, we would hang around for several hours at the end of every Friday. And we would go through and say, okay, what are the bare minimum set of ideas that might just be helpful for everybody to share if we're going to think through problems together? And that's what led to this course, Sense and Sensibility in Science. What, what are a couple of the key notions that help us solve a problem more efficiently? I mean, I would say that the one underlying thing that ran through the whole course is um, is the fact that science is, I think, invented 
just partly to deal with the fact that we fool ourselves so easily, that we uh-huh. want to believe things, and then we fool ourselves into believing them. And so much of science is around helping us uh, catch the various different ways that we know that we fool ourselves and and be able to you know put sort of little guardrails and to help each other not fool ourselves again. And it's the kind of thing that we have to do over and over again, because even when we're teaching the course, we still find ourselves making the same mistakes. And so we still, um, in the end, we, the only way I think to get, to get around this is to teach enough other people who are with, working with you so they will keep you honest. And, right. and I think that's really what science ended up inventing. It invented you know, the tools to help each other, keep each other honest. Um, and, that that's, and that's really you know, what so many of the, uh, of, of the elements that we were teaching were about, right? each of these different ways that we fool ourselves and different ways to, to do better. So that, that's one whole theme that runs through the entire course. You know, the idea of fooling ourselves, kidding ourselves, seems central to your, your whole life in science. The, the effort not to stick with an idea that everybody has always held to be true. That's, the, that's your big discovery. Why, didn't, you, didn't you start out to measure that the, the, how much the universe was slowing down in its expansion? That is not slowing down. The, the universe wasn't slowing down. The expansion wasn't slowing down, but the rate of expansion was slowing down, right? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And and you, you, but you, that's what you started to measure, the decrease in acceleration. Th- that's right. And, and it, tur- it turned out that, uh, that you know, all of our expectations were, were, were wrong. Um, and so, uh, you know, and it took years um, to, to develop these techniques and to get to the point that we were, you know, were seeing these results. Um, and, of course, the very first thing you uh, imagine when you see the results is that you must be making a mistake. And so... Yeah. Um, so but you, you got the Nobel Prize for making a mistake. And, 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 and what you end up doing is you end up spending all your time trying to figure out, you know, okay, where's the mistake this time? And it turned out that the mistake was in our fundamental picture of the universe, which is a great mistake. That's the kind of mistake you want to find, right? You, you want to realize that the world is nothing like what you imagined. It's actually doing something completely different. And, and I think that's, I mean, in some sense, that is so much fun, I think, for a scientist um, to f- catch the universe doing something different than they imagined, that it makes up for the fact that it just proved to them that it proved to us that we were that we were going wrong on something. Um, and so, uh, and it's it's. Uh, I hope that that's the pleasure that gets people to f- figure out their mistakes together. You know, it must have been enormously exciting for you to find out that the universe was not decelerating, but it was accelerating faster and faster. The exact opposite of what you and everybody else had believed. Was, was, what was that moment like when you finally said that, it, that it, it's true, it's, 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 not, it's not bad data? Well, what's really funny is that you, you spend so much time trying to figure out whether there's something wrong, you know, with, with, with the result. Yeah. Um, that your, your starting point, you just um, don't, you can't get excited because you're just assuming that they're saying, you know, that you're going to have to figure out that that's a, a problem, you know. And then it was only after months and months and months that we finally started saying that I, I guess we can uh, we can start presenting this and showing this to everybody. And when I uh, and, w- and when I did that, the first time I gave a real scientific presentation, it was to a um, it, it was to a group um, at, at a university at Santa Cruz. Um, and after I finished the talk, um, one of the famous cosmologists in the audience um, stood up and he turned around to the audience and he said, 
you know, I just want to point out that this is really a big deal. This is a completely different <laughs> picture. And, and, I, and, and, and it, you know, I've been so carefully trying to make the case and show all the things that we hadn't done, that, that, that we checked that could have gone wrong. And, and that, that, that was the moment where I stopped and I said, yeah, actually, it's a big deal, you know, and, and, and it, 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 it's sort of, you know, it, it, somebody else had to help you, you, you remind yourself that this is really, you know, amazing, you know. You let up for a moment on attacking your own idea, which exactly. is essential. Exactly. You know, you remind me uh, of a scientist I heard being interviewed about the Webb telescope, and they said, what, what do you hope is the biggest thing you'll find. And she said, she said, I hope the biggest thing we'll find is that we were all wrong about something. Exactly, exactly. And, and I don't think most people realize that the, that the pleasure of being a scientist is usually trying to figure out how it is that we all made some mistake. And that, you know, that's what makes you famous, you know, if you're, if, if you're lucky. Um, and, uh, and, and so we're constantly um, trying to figure out, and, and we're rooting for um, something to be, uh, you know, broken in, in the story. And, and we're always disappointed when we, you know, spend you know, a lot of time and, oh, and, 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 you know, studying something like a, you know, new particle accelerator result. And, and then all we get is that actually it confirms what we already thought. That's considered to be, oh, that's too bad. You know, we had to do it, but, you know, but, it's, but, we, but you know, it just showed that, that you know, Einstein's still right. You know. But, but we, you, you're right. We have to somehow spread this idea among the whole population because we're living through a time now where it's dangerous that people say, you told us one thing last week, now you're telling us something else. You can't be right about anything. It, it, it's it's so uh, interesting. I think that the way in which the uh, people understood the advice from, let's say, the CDC, you know, about the pandemic, um, uh, ended up, I think, really undercutting the the whole uh, feel of it. Because, I mean, in some ways, it was really like more. I, I thought they should have explained that this is more like a a football game, and we're and we're calling the plays every week. And, uh. Uh, and, you know, this week, our best play against the pandemic seems to be, you know, to, I don't know, we, we, we think we should not be using masks. But uh, next week, it looks like actually we, you know, now we see what's going on a little bit differently. And now we need to use masks, you know, and then uh, we're using, you know, vaccines. And then, and then we have to uh, realize that, oh, the, the, uh, the virus has, it's, it's playing a new play now. It's, it's, it's you know, it's uh, mutated. Um, so now we have to, you know, use a booster. And, you know, I mean, it, it, I think it should have had a little bit more of the feel of a dynamic um, play as we learn more as the virus changes we're making our chest moves against the chest moves of the, of the virus. And so um, you would think that at that point, nobody would say, wait, you, you changed the play again? Um, I thought, you know, I thought we're playing the same play that we played, you know, for the, for yeah. the first down. Aren't we going to do it forever? You know, and of course, nobody, <laughs> nobody would say that, you know, that, that, that would be silly, you know. And, and yet I think that was the, the feel. And that's why I think people misunderstood about what, what the advice meant during a moment in which science is First of all, learning more, and second of all, trying to keep up with a changing uh, situation of a virus. That's yet another example of your everyday way of bringing us to the point of understanding this simple idea, but hard to grasp, that mistakes are good if you can learn from them. Or if, if you do learn from them, if, if you were mistaken about the way things were. Yes, and, and uh, you know, and of course it's, uh, it's you know, the... In some sense, it's what makes it such a dynamic business to be a scientist. It's uh, it's terrible that you know in school it's taught so much as if it were a static finished product. You know yes. that that all you do is try to catch up with all these things we've already learned, and then try to show that you can re 
you can you know, generate the same result again that, you know, that somebody uh, you know, that we know should be the case. And, but that's so much not what it means to actually be doing science day to day. And, and I think it really undercuts partly the pleasure of it for most people uh, that they don't get that sense of, of creativity and excitement as they're in school learning um, science the way that they should. And I think that would make them feel like they were part of the game when they get to you know, join with other scientists thinking about a problem. When we come back from our break, Saul Perlmutter tells me why even though the universe is rapidly expanding, the distance between you and me isn't. Best of all, he confirms something I've always suspected. I actually am at the center of the universe. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Saul Perlmutter. So this is a great opportunity for me, where I have the chance to talk to somebody who can help me understand some of the most difficult things to imagine in the cosmos. Your, your very own discovery that's been called dark energy. Something is pushing, apparently, something is pushing apart all the galaxies, right? It's only the galaxies that are moving away from one another. It's not, our planets aren't moving away from each other, right? There, there are things that are orbiting around each other because they're bound together by, by gravity, um, and they uh, tend not to be pulling, you know, moving apart because the expansion is so subtle um, on that scale. But uh-huh. anything that's not uh, bound to something else um, is separating from each other. So the galaxies are good examples, right, that they t- typically are far enough apart from each other that they're not just orbiting each other. Um, and so that's what we really watch. We watch the, uh, the distance between galaxies increasing over time. And that's what we call the expansion of the universe. I think one thing that people don't realize is that as far as we know, the universe could be infinite. Um, and in which case, um, it's, there's nothing that anything has to expand into. Um, it's an infinite uh, universe that goes on forever and ever, galaxies this way, galaxies that way, you know, in any direction you, you look. Um, and then the only thing that's changing is that the distance between all the galaxies is getting bigger. So when you ask what's expanding, in some sense, it's all the space between 
all the points in the universe. Is, right. you know, you're, you're puffing new space in between the galaxies. So I often hear from cosmologists that there will come a time when the galaxies are so far apart that the night sky will, will be, everything will be dark, we won't see anything. But what we'll still see, won't it, won't it be our own galaxy? And because other other galaxies are not not many are naked are available to the naked eye, right? It's only somebody with a telescope who's going to be disappointed at looking into blackness. Yes, that's that that's right. I mean, the the first thing that we that we we'll, that we would see in this kind of uh, of a scenario, um, if it continues to ex, ex, um, expand and, and continues to accelerate in expansion, um, will be that the all of the other galaxies that we get to see with telescopes will become out of our sight because um, light will not be able to travel to us from them uh, fast enough to, to reach us. So, so how, how many billions of years do we have to wait before we have a giant yard sale of telescopes? Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, actually, this is a, a very interesting question because the possibilities are wide open. It could be from, you know, a, as, as like, you know, just about as little time as we've been here, we humans have been here on Earth, it could already end, or it could be, Billions of years into the future, before um, before we would see that we uh, no longer can look at the surrounding galaxies. It's amazing that there are even speculations of the kind you're describing. I mean, the it, fact it, that you can do these these uh, these discussions and 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 have it um, actually be something that you could test is yeah, is yeah. remarkable, right? That it's you, know, it, you wouldn't think that we we should be capable of this, and that and yet that's one of the things that makes you know I think uh, well the 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 life of the human so amazing, yeah. Now that I have a glimmer of dark energy, I'm wondering what experiments you might be looking forward to on the Webb telescope that would throw more light for you on what the source of that increasing speed is. Well, the kind of thing that we were looking at was we were asking, we've studied the history of the expansion going back uh, beyond when the universe was accelerating back to the earlier half of the life of the universe when it was decelerating. And because the picture is that actually- is still, still expanding, but not expanding as fast as it is now. So what we think is going on was that in the very earliest days, it started off with a big rush, this inflationary theory uh, uh -huh. of the universe, and it was accelerating at a high rate. And then it started to slow down and slow down and slow down until halfway back in time, about 7 billion years ago, so, you know, it started about 13.7 billion years ago. About 7 billion years ago, it stopped slowing down and turned and it started to speed up. So it was always expanding, but it was expanding slower and slower and slower. And then it started expanding faster and faster and faster. And um, we think that that was the moment at which the dark energy became more important than the um, all the mass in the universe that gravitationally was attracting. So it uh, once things become far enough apart from each other, gravity isn't as important. And at that point, the dark energy takes over and starts to accelerate the expansion. So we were interested in going back and looking at how did that happen? Um, you know, how did it go from slowing down um, to becoming you know, basically empty enough that the gravity wasn't important to then speeding up? And because different theories of dark energy could give you slightly different predictions of what that would look like. And that's one of the things that we want to go further back with the uh, James Webb Space Telescope and do that same study going further back in time to the time when it really was gravity that mattered and things really were slowing down. Do you ever have the challenge when you're at dinner with civilians who haven't studied this the way you have 
where anybody says, yes, that's interesting, but why should I care? It either, I, either it happened so long ago or it's going to happen so far in the future. Why, why, why would somebody care? Now, absolutely. And, uh, and this comes up actually, um, particularly when, when I, um, uh, I'm talking to somebody, uh, you know, let's say in Congress, you know, where they're having to decide, <laughs> yeah. you know, why, why are we funding, you know, all, all this stuff? And, and I think the, there's a number of different parts of the story. I mean, some of it is, of course, just that, um, you know, what are the pleasures of life? What does it mean to be human? Um, part of, one of the pleasures of life is, is trying to understand the world that we live in. You know, so that you know that's fine as, uh, um, as far as it goes. But um, why would a um, a government invest large amounts of money in doing this? Um, you know, if it's it, it, beyond just the the pleasure and and the richness that it gives to, uh, in our lives, and uh, and I think there's um, some very interesting reasons. Um, when you look at the big advances and the big shifts in the world around us um, that technology has made possible, um, you and you look at each of these different technologies, you realize that most of them, uh, the ones that really changed the world that we live in, um, we didn't get them by just doing practical use-inspired science and technology. Um, almost all of them come because somebody was just curious and try to understand something very deep about how the world works. And, and you know, if you had asked, oh, you know, somebody, why should somebody, anybody fund Einstein to study uh, general relativity? Um, it's the stupidest idea I've, I can think of in terms of practicality. You know, we're going to study what happens when clocks travel near the speed of light. I mean, that's silly. We don't get anything near the speed of light that we've ever, you know, around us. And we, and we, uh, and we're certainly not getting any clocks to the speed of light. Um, you know, that's a bad idea for a proposal if you were doing use-inspired science. Um, and yet, uh, because we now understand general relativity, um, we, we are now able to use GPS um, to locate you know, ourselves you know, in, on the earth. And, and you know, we all know, um, you know what a you know, multi-billion dollar of different industrial applications um, GPS has inspired. The, I mean, the congressman who wouldn't fund it is now carrying Einstein in his pocket. Precisely. And uh, we don't know how to back, back design what fundamental science we need in order to figure something out in the future. All we know is that when we do curiosity-driven science, we learn deep things about how the world works. And those have been what move us ahead in the world. And so in some sense, I've no idea whether dark energy will end up being you know, practically useful at all. All I know is that it's probably what makes most of the universe um, is probably in the form of dark energy, and we we should know about it. You know, it's the kind of thing that we should we should learn about. And when we do learn about things deep like that, somehow magically, it seems to have made a huge difference. And that's where you know the world around us with MRI and and lasers and 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 GPS and I mean all these things come about because somebody did curiosity driven research without any use inspiration at all. Before we go, I have a personal request. See if you can help me with something. I was at dinner with friends the other night, and naturally the subject of the cosmos came up. As it does. As it tends to, yeah. And the, the question arose was, how is it we can look back in any direction on the globe, no matter where we are, we look into space, 
and we see, we are looking toward the Big Bang. So how could that possibly be? And it, I tried exactly. to explain it, and I left them with egg on their face and, and all over mine as well. So, so this is one of the ones where um, we we sort of need a cartoon model to just to picture the whole story and imagine why that's the case. And so, what what I typically do is I I say, okay, let's um, I, I, I sometimes draw like a, a a sequence of dots, you know, and and uh, a grid of dots, and I say that those dots represent galaxies, and there's just some you know typical distance between those galaxies, and in an expanding universe. Um, that's what it is that's going to increase, that the dots are all going to get moved further apart from each other. But before you can even start the, the, the story, you have to first imagine what it would mean if you lived in a sea of dots that was infinite. So they go as far as you want to the right and to the left and as far as you want down and up and forward and backwards. You're just living anywhere you look. You're in that sea of dots um, that is the galaxies all around us. And that's actually, as far as we know, the world we live in, that you could look in any direction. And if you just look far enough, you'll see galaxies. So that's a good starting point. Um, it, it, it doesn't show us the, uh, that we're looking at the Big Bang, but it shows us we're looking at other parts of the universe. Um, anywhere, any direction we look, we're seeing galaxies. Now, if you went forward in time, um, you'd be pumping space between all those galaxies. And everywhere you looked, you'd notice the galaxies were getting further from, apart from each other and further apart from us because, you know, we're adding space between all of these series of infinite galaxies in all directions. But if you go backwards in times, you're sucking the space out between them and everything is starting to get closer and closer and closer to each other. And eventually um, you get back to a time in which things were right on top of each other and very dense and very hot. And it was infinite. You know, this, that soup all around us um, was at that time a infinite soup of hot, dense you know, stuff. So now you just say, okay, what happened to all that hot, dense stuff um, at that time? Well, it glowed. It was, uh, th th there was you know, photons coming off of it because um, hot things glow. And where did those photons go? Well, it's an infinite universe. They bounce around until eventually things, uh, as you go forward in time, everything becomes empty enough. And now those photons that were from that glow go off and travel forever um, in all directions. But that means that if you look out in any direction, you will be seeing some of the soup um, that was glowing back then. Those, um, those photons will be reaching us now from some place or other um, that was around us at that time as that hot, dense soup. And, and so it's, a, it's sort of a bizarre story, but it's because the photons don't go away. They just keep traveling and they lose energy. They become weaker and weaker. But because we're able to build very sensitive detectors, we can pick up those very weak photons that are still traveling from that leftover glow um, during that time in which, the, which everything around us was hot and dense and the soup. You know what I think I hear you saying? It's not a question of looking back at a point from which everything exploded. Everything expanded and we're not looking for the Big Bang. We are the Big Bang. It, it, exactly. That, that um, any place in that soup feels the same. They're all at the beginning of the Big Bang. And so we are. We are I, I am at the center of the universe, just the way I always thought. It's not an actor it, thing. It, it, exactly. But you have, to be, you have to be democratic and realize that the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the uh, interviewer in, astro in, in, uh, in astronomy in uh, Andromeda also is the center of the universe. And the one over there, you know, in, in the uh, Alpha Centauri, um, they're the center of the universe because 
you know, it's an infinite universe. And so any place was equally good place to start from and, and, and to have things and to be looking at things moving apart from you. Yeah. A very democratic way to end the conversation. We're running out of as time, which, as you know, is space. So, <laughs> so before we go, we always end our show with seven quick questions. Ah. Inviting seven quick answers, if you don't mind. First question, what do you wish you really understood? Well, there's so many things. On the physics side, I wish that um, I had a, even a glimmering of how it is that gravity and, and, the, uh, and this whole part of the story of general relativity fits together with all the other forces and, spe- and, and uh, quantum mechanics. Because right now, um, they, they're both clearly very excellent predictors of, of how the universe works, and yet we don't know how they fit together. So that's sort of the, one of the deepest physics questions that, that I'd be curious about. Now, and what about on another side? And on the other side, I think I, I would love to understand how our consciousness fits into this whole story um, of, of the physical universe. Um, because I think that the, um, as amazing as the physical universe is, the human story is an amazing story. What does it feel like to be a human being? And I, and I think that you know, the, uh, the sense that we invent things together and we do things together, I think that story is as bizarre and interesting as, as, the, uh, as the physics story. And I'd love to, to you know, if there's, it's, it's hard to even know how to ask the question, but that would be something that I'd love to know a little bit more about. You know? Great. Next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Well, I think that what people really are often looking for is they, um, they would like to to know what really is going on out there in the world. And they, um, and, you know, I think the fact that, or the, the story that I've been you know, teaching in this course, that we fool ourselves so much, we're, it's so easy for us to be wrong, is almost the starting point of the human condition. And that um, what's amazing is that we're able to help each other um, figure out you know, where we're going, you know, where we're going wrong and where we're going right. So um, when I talk to somebody, you know, where I feel like um, it seems to me they're just getting the facts wrong, uh, you know, I think the starting point is is just trying to get people to feel together that we always get facts wrong, and we and our job isn't to convince each other about facts. Our job is to ask each other, okay, help me figure out why I'm going wrong this time. And so, you know, I usually begin by saying, all right. Walk me through why is it that I'm misunderstanding the story, and then maybe you know they'd be op- open to being walked through about why they may be misunderstanding the story because it's it's got to be a reciprocal job you know for us to do this together. Um, it, it, it's it's just impossible for people to just you know take you telling them this is the way the truth must be. You know. Great. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, now that's a that's a hard one. I I, I will comment that. Um, when you work in a field like cosmology, um, you get uh, emails almost every day um, from people first with theories of, of, of how the universe must work, um, and, and which are often very poetic and very interesting, but impossible to tell whether or not uh, they're true or not. Um, and you also um, get questions of all sorts you know, that, that, that people have. Um, I say many of the, of the, of the questions, um, there's a little danger that people are asking you a question because they think they already know the answer. Um, and so <laughs> yeah. those, those are less fun. Um, but uh, I'm trying to think of what we count as a really strange question that, that, that somebody, somebody's uh, asked me. Um, I don't think it's probably, it may, maybe I don't have a really great strange one, but I do have is that people often want to know um, whether having studied um, 
the universe in these ways, it changes my conception of spirituality, you know, and, mm. and, uh, and issues of, of, of that sort. And I must say that I, I've always feel I am disappointing people because I feel like, um, in some ways, all of the study of how the universe works is fascinating. It's amazing. And it tells you all sorts of things about the universe. It tells you things about the capabilities of humans to go beyond their own, uh, limited brains and understand something, you know, uh, beyond that. But I feel like if anything, it, it just, um, slightly narrows in the range of my questions about consciousness and about, you know, what, what could humanity's consciousness mean? Um, and that's really what spirituality is about. And so it doesn't really help me answer that question um, yet, you know. Okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Yeah, no, that's a that's a fascinating one, and the and and of course the danger is is uh, is you you keep going until somebody says it's the end of the hour and we have to stop the interview. <laughs> Not quite. Okay, let's say you're at a dinner table and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a genuine conversation? So, so for me, I you know obviously it's it's so much has to do with curiosity, you know, and if you can find you know what is it that. Uh, this other person is excited about and is interested in and is is uh, maybe even surprised by, um, that's usually one of the most fun angles uh, just because, you know, almost everybody has something that they're particularly you know, passionate about. And the hard part is to not have it just be an obsession that you don't understand, but yeah. to find... Okay, but why is it fun? You know, what, 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 what's the, uh, where did you get the kick from, you know, in, in, in that topic? Uh, because, you know, for, for most of us, we don't understand why is the other person obsessed by what, what, by what they're obsessed by. Next to last question, what gives you confidence? Well, I must say that I've, um, when I look through the history of, of you know, humans on Earth, um, I'm just amazed at how far people can uh, can come if they're working together on any problem. And so my, my, I've come to think that all we need to do is get people roughly on the same page, enough so they're actually trying to do something together. And I'm not worried about almost any of the big, scary things that, you know, that could be existential threats. I, mean, I really think that, you know, we are amazingly capable when we're actually trying to figure things out together. And that's, I think, the thing that gives me the, the most confidence. Uh, you know, in, and I wouldn't have any confidence of myself trying to do anything alone. It's only when I can get a group of people to, to, you know, to, to, who are smarter than me to work with. You know. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Wow. Wow, there's so many. Oh, where, where would I start? I mean, I, I, I'd say that you know, some of it were, were the, uh, the, the great fiction, you know, fiction writers, uh, the create the oddities of somebody like a uh, George Louis Borges, uh, you know, a short story writer. Um, the uh, the, the uh, maybe the more huma- humanities feeling of of, uh, of a Jane Austen or a or a, or a modern day uh, you know, the I mean, I think all these things you know um, made a big had big impacts on me. Um, and then even the comedy of a of a P. G. Woodhouse, because um, I, I think that having that light approach to the world as often to, to me it seemed like a very important way is of getting people to join each other and, 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 and work together. Um, so I, so I, I would, I would throw them all in, uh, you know, and then, you know, there's a, a, you know, in that vein, there's probably a, a, a Feynman, uh, you know, a book, you know, where, where it's just the sense of the fun of trying to figure things out um, com- comes through so strongly. Yeah. 
That's great. Well, you certainly have a light approach to very heavy things. And I'm so glad you shared that with us today. I, I, it makes me want to meet you again under other circumstances and talk for a day and a half. Well, Thank I'll, you so I'll, much. I'll look, forward, I'll look forward to it. And I'm, 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 and I'm optimistic that we will, we will be out, out and about at some point in the, in the not too distant future. Great, Saul. Thank you. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Saul Perlmutter is a Nobel Prize winner for his role in the discovery that the universe is expanding ever faster. He's professor of physics at the University of California, Berkeley, and senior scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. His interest in teaching scientific-style critical thinking for both scientists and non-scientists led to the Berkeley courses Sense and Sensibility in Science, along with Physics and Music. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with a super-talented Bette Midler. I've always wondered where her character, the Divine Miss M, came from. Surprisingly, it just popped out of the mouth of the MC at her first performance. That's how he introduced me. Ladies and gentlemen, the Divine Miss M. And it stuck. And I thought it was great. And you know what I really thought it was great? More than 50 years later, I realized that it had something to do, that word divine, meant more than I actually realized. I thought it was, oh, you know, I'm divine, I, you know, I'm ready for my close-up, that kind of wackiness. But as the years have gone by, I've realized that it was the opening of a door, something having to do with, with God, something having to do with spirituality. I've had so many shows, I've, been, I've had divine madness, I've had divine intervention. But the thing is, the thing that's so great about it is that it's um, a link. It's a, a spiritual link. The Divine Miss M, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.
Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.